Hi, I'm Gauri Selassilam and welcome to Business of Building, a personal note from leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Today, I'm here with Scott Murdoch, who is the chairman of UK Retail at CBRE and was the founder and managing partner of CWM prior to the merger of the two businesses in March 2022. Scott brings vast experience and considerable expertise from the commercial property industry, where he currently represents a number of landlord clients, including Battersea Power Station Development Company, Crosstree, Olayan, British Land, Seller, and Uvin. Scott also represents a lot of retailer clients, including Hugo Boss, Arg, and Summers, All Saints, Gant, The Body Shop, Radley, and Pret, to name but a few. Scott is also currently and has been a shareholder director for a number of retail, restaurant and leisure related companies, including Box Park, Bonnie and Wild, Cromwell Place and Melrose and Morgan. And in recent years has sat on the board for a number of children's charities, including Variety and Action for Children and a trustee of Childhood First. Scott and my paths crossed almost a decade ago when we worked on the portfolio for retailer Hugo Boss. I have always been impressed with his understanding of clients, his relationship building ability, negotiations and pure charisma. He always looks at ease and Scott, I'm sorry for saying that, but you've always looked at ease when you're having even the most challenging conversations. And I always thought he is one of those people who must have always known what he wanted and where he wanted to be. So here I am to explore, did Scott really know where he wanted to be when he started? So without further ado, please welcome Scott Murdoch. Thank you for joining us, Scott. And I'm very, very excited to be speaking to you. Although we know each other for a very long time, this is a different setting, isn't it, to have a chat? A very different setting and uh, how the world has changed, Gary, since we met each other all those years ago. Now we're in such a, a technical sort of environment where I'm actually in a Zoom room in my office dedicated to uh, just, just to this sort of uh, mode of communication. It's quite a, quite a changed world. It is, it is. And uh, if we were to think about it just two years ago, specifically in our industry, it's quite, quite a movement. So I, I guess uh, the first question, Scott, for us to move on would be, how, how did you end up in the world of commercial real estate and with such an expertise and decades of experience now behind you? How was the starting point? What is the life story here? Well, the life story is not quite what you would imagine, Gary, and not as exciting as you might uh, as you might think. It all started off um, because I was not the brightest at school at all, quite sporty, but not the brightest, and didn't do particularly well in my sort of uh, A-level exams. Um, I was distracted by rugby and cricket and football and lots of other uh, sports. And um, as a consequence, it didn't really worry me too much because I only had one love in life at that time, apart from sport, and that was um, to be a pilot. So I wanted to... Uh, to be an RAF pilot and I had uh, I'd passed my um, gliding exam and I was a qualified glider pilot at 16 years of age because my birthday falls in, um, in the summer in July I actually trained to be a pilot uh, on uh, proper aircraft and fixed-wing aircraft when I was 16 years of age and then I passed my test my flying test my GFT 
on the, the day after my birthday on the 14th of July. So I was a fully qualified pilot at 17 years of age in one day. And uh, that's all I, I wanted to do. Uh, and then uh, having done that um, flying scholarship to uh, get into the uh, RAF, just as I was about to sign a 16-year um, contract, which it was at the time, 16-year service minimum, my father, um, who... Um, was and is still alive uh, an engineer he hasn't retired even though he's in his mid-80s he's not retired yet he said to me son are you doing the right thing um are you definitely convinced you want to give 16 years of your life away to the air force and to the arms uh, armed forces do you not want to get a degree under your belt first of all before you decide to uh, go into the uh, royal air force and uh, I said, Dad, that's a great idea, but you haven't, you may not have spotted that I'm not the brightest. I'm thick as two short blanks. And uh, what degree would I be able to get into? And he said, well, as an engineer, I sit in these meetings with lots of people, developers and quantity surveyors and uh, construction people. And um, I also sit in these meetings with uh, guys um, in the corner of the room called charter surveyors. And they've got uh, all the chat, just like you. They've got a little sort of flash car parked outside and they're as thick as you are. So uh, I'm sure you'll be able to get that sort of career. And to do that, you have to do... Um, uh, estate management or uh, land economy at university and but all the rugby players that you uh, you know well all got into um, property whilst playing rugby because it was an amateur sport in those days why don't you follow that route so um, lo and behold my father's advice uh, I looked down the UCA forms at the time to see what the lowest entry qualification was to any uh, university or college and it happened to be South Bank Poly was the lowest uh, even though I lived in Scotland in those days South Bank Poly in London was the uh, was the lowest entry level and I managed to scrape into uh, to property completely by default with the intention of just going to college for three years getting my degree and then rejoining the RAF that was the plan it was no there was no intention to do real estate as a as a career and of course um the rest is history. I ended up going to do the degree and uh, realizing that probably uh, a 16 year service commission in the Air Force wasn't for me. Uh, I was um, rather seduced by London life, seduced by real estate and, um, and got into property uh, via that back door. It's fantastic. One thing I didn't know was RAF, Scott, because I gave exams in India for IAF and I passed them and I was due to go as well. And for me, it was, wasn't quite 16 years, it was five years. Uh, it was called the Short Service Commission at the time. And uh, in my case, it was my mom <laughs> who was like, is this something what you really, really want to do? And this was before I came to London for my master's. So this is, this is something I didn't know about you and we have in common, which is quite interesting. <laughs> And you still do, are you still a passionate uh, flyer now? No, not, I've not kept up with that, unfortunately. With everything else which is going on, but it's quite interesting because there are so many tests. And one of the things was even measuring the length of your legs, the sitting height, and because you have to fit into the cockpit, as it were. So, um, yeah, I, at least I know the process. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one thing, though, uh, which which strikes me is you have been very interested in team sports. I guess that's one of the things probably which comes back into what you have done in the industry as well is team building, isn't it? Because uh, that has probably helped you shape that as uh, that part. How important has it been for you when you built your business and now in CBRE as well? 
Very much so. I, I, it's a very interesting sort of observation that because it's 100 percent true. I, I would I would even go back to my school days, Gary, where I was um, a reasonable sportsman, but I was probably quite good at a lot of sports rather than being brilliant at any particular one. Um, so uh, as a consequence, I was driven to towards the team sports more than the individual sports, even though I love tennis and even though I love um, golf, I was definitely, uh, definitely more attracted to team sports. And quite often, uh, especially in my rugby career, I would play for a, a slightly lower level club as captain rather than being uh, in the uh, the best team as an also ran. So I just quite, it was, it was subconscious. I didn't really intend to, uh, I didn't think at the time that I I want to be this sort of uh, leader, but I just enjoyed the captaincy and the, resp- the camaraderie and responsibility in rugby and in football and in cricket in particular. I was captain of many teams in uh, in cricket over the years, and uh, I, th- I think that that was probably what started off my desire to uh, to form uh, one day my own business and try and be a captain of a uh, or a CEO of, of a company. It was some co- subconscious at the time. I can't say that I definitely set out to do so. Um, I had uh, really as you heard from my story about the property, I fell into it really rather than uh, any deliberate plan. But I think uh, many people that have been with me on the journey for all these years since feel that I always had uh, the intention of being a CEO one day. And I, I don't uh, know if that's 100% true, I, uh, but I, I certainly like the idea of being a sort of captain or a, in charge of a team. So you always follow strategies? Do you do you think a lot about strategies or is this something which comes naturally to you depending on where what the situation is or do you think about this might work, I need to try this or read books to follow some strategies? No, I think the only the only success that I've um, I would say that the key success Gary to and my in my career is to surround myself with people that uh, have uh, either uh, intelligence that I haven't got or strategic ability in certain areas or in, in great EQ. So I, I think I'm quite good at spotting, I'm pretty good at sort of uh, spotting uh, opportunity, business, business-wise, transaction, uh, business uh, investments that might lead to profitability. I, to, to try and implement the strategy to achieve that final goal, I needed, I'm very acutely aware, I need a team around me. And I've been very blessed most of my uh, business life to have a lady called Shirin El Ganyan. Um, she's been with me for 25 years. She turned 60 um, just uh, a few months ago. She wouldn't mind me saying. And uh, she was everything that I wasn't. So we met each other um, through her husband, actually. Who, she's godmother to my um, uh, eldest um, boy. And um, her husband is godfather to my uh, youngest daughter. And uh, they're very close family friends, super successful Iranian uh, family, came over in 79 from the revolution. And uh, she's unbelievable at um, EQ, fantastic emotional intelligence, really, really knows how to uh, deal with people. She's beautiful inside and out. And she was um, a great person. Um, Many people would say that um, Scott would be um, the man at the forefront trying to sort of do all this, uh, these transactions and she would always be sweeping up the, uh, the debris that I left behind. That's a little bit unfair, I think, but we were a great sort of balancing act. So I think um, if I'm being honest, Gary, to summarize, I would say strategically, I was good at finding people that I could work alongside and who complemented my, uh, my skill set uh, in that management team. I could never, ever do it on my own. You bring out a very important point, which I always observe in leadership. Um, And probably that kind of leads into a very nice question, because which is very interesting for me is what does leadership look like for you in today's world? 
So uh, today, um, for example, I, I um, this morning, uh, for two and a half hours this morning, Gary, you will find this also hard to believe, um, but it's 100% it's true. I'm obsessed by the metaverse, for example. And I think the future of so much of what we do in real estate, particularly in retail, will um, we'll get into, um, uh, will, will involve, um, and I have an Oculus Quest uh, 2 headset at home and have done for five years. And uh, I've been very into that whole metaverse sort of world, creating my own avatar and going into sort of a retail world. And the reason why I mentioned that example is that even though I'm an older man, I, um, I surround myself with uh, younger, talented people that can teach me. So I've got no, there's no ageism with me. Uh, there's no sexism with me. I've had uh, more women in my office than, uh, than men consistently because they're uh, fundamentally more uh, uh, able and capable in retail than, than men are. <laughs> and I, and I, really, I really believe that genuinely. And sure enough, she was here. Um, she would definitely uh, support that. I, I think I'm... Uh, what I've, uh, what leadership is about is trying to empower um, talent uh, of all age groups. The best recruit uh, that I have um, ever um, cured, I think, in my um, uh, uh, subordinate recruit rather than a partner, I would say, would be a guy called Steve Ardron that I recruited during the pandemic uh, two and a half years ago. Now, he is um, in his mid-60s. Uh, so this is this is not uh, an ageism for um, recruiting and employing young people. It's also uh, this guy was about to retire. I said uh, you had 30 years at Debenhams uh, and before that at Next for um, 15 years, an amazing career. I said, come and help us. And he has been he's so the workaholic, the work ethic, the um, the intelligence that he has, um, the knowledge of the industry has been fantastic. So I just think what I'm very what what leadership today for me looks like is you've got to find and here's my first of many during this podcast, I would suggest, Gary, references to sporting analogies. So for me, it all comes down to football in business life. And the important thing in leadership is to find that team, to find the best possible sort of uh, midfield players, to find the best possible defenders, the best possible goalkeeper, and of course, your uh, your superstar, as I call them, the rock star um, strikers that are going to, uh, to do the business for you up front, but they may not be able to... Uh, implement the business they'll find you the business they'll do the deals but they might not be able to um, then run the uh, the business thereafter so it's important i think in leadership to uh, be able to select as a manager the best possible football team uh, in any given circumstance and that maybe is uh, what i've done reasonably successfully over the uh, over the years it's fantastic and also empathy probably isn't it because you you re reference to eq um with your partner as well which is which is quite an important characteristic i'm seeing to relate especially when we, we have all come out of covid in the last two years where people are still finding their feet having the confidence to come back to work taking the tubes do you find the same as well yeah i, th I think eq slash mental health i think is um something that is very very um it's something that we didn't talk about. Let's face it, if we had had a, a podcast existed 10 years ago, it's pretty unlikely that you and I would have covered uh, EQ and mental health in that uh, in that discussion. The world has changed so enormously. And I think, um, you know, clearly what happened in, during the pandemic accelerated in retail what was going to happen naturally in 10 years or in, uh, in a period of time, seven to 10 years, happened in seven months. Uh, in my in my opinion, uh, in terms of the, the transformation of retail. But also we learned um, other skills during that time, apart from this uh, wonderful Zoom call that we're on right now, we learned the EQ and the mental health became a lot more acute. We were all suffering 
and we all saw in our children the fact that they were not getting their education day to day how they were affected by that we saw in our relationships with our husbands and our wives with our fathers and our mothers and our brothers and our sisters everything changed and it made us i think more acutely aware of how um to deal with conflicting personalities and um, people that were suffering during that that time and i think that's um made us all very very different um since we came back to the office we're all uh, i'm hoping uh, it's a permanent change a lot more understanding of each other and a lot more sympathetic towards each other than we were i can really see that having changed and i just hope it's not a uh, a sort of passing fad and that we revert back to how we were i'm sure we uh, we won't i guess yeah it's yeah it's definitely also increased the momentum of change isn't it as you said yeah um it's hopefully it's a change for to stay rather than uh, being a trend for a little bit i don't think so because you can see it in people the sensitivity for other people has changed i think when people come to work or how are you feeling or just reaching out over a zoom call and seeing how people are doing which which is quite nice to see uh, uh, it is, it's also true gary sorry just to interrupt you sorry forgive me but i i since i will come on to see our no doubt in a minute but i uh, i've noticed since i've been here in the last few months how um they have the seminars and the uh, events that they have here including two events uh, just yesterday are cover subjects that are um, sensitive subjects that would never have been discussed in, in a in a pre-pandemic world the very first discussion i i had first first um, seminar i went to here was a multi-faith event here which used to be called the um because i'm married into the jewish world it used to be it called the jewish um forum and uh, they've now renamed that as they should do, and obviously in a, in a recent world to the Faith Forum. So we had um, a variety of Muslims, we had a variety of Jewish people there, we had um, Sikhs, we had all sorts of uh, denominations, all discussing and collaborating in my first meeting here about uh, mental health and how it was affecting them at home, the point of view of family and religion. And uh, it's, uh, I, th I think things have, uh, have really, people would never have uh, attended that seminar before or participated in the way that they are now in such a sort of uh, uh, an overtly um, interactive way um, as they are now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible how the world is changing and how quickly it's, uh, it's changing for, for the better. Do you think it has made us, because it has, this is my observation perhaps, but it has, I feel like it has made us open a bit more to different way of living. I mean, just coming back to the construction industry, uh, having a Zoom call, for example, with your client would be a bit of, you know, not a taboo, I wouldn't say taboo, but it would be like, what, you can't make for a meeting, for a client meeting face to face. And whereas now it's a bit more acceptable. Uh, and so do you think it has made us more open to different ideas and new ways of thinking? And uh, perhaps the uh, the team members who came into the into that meeting as well, but has the way of looking at things changed within the industry? It definitely has. It, I, unquestionably, certainly in my, in my experience, it, it has done. I think people are, um, we, we, we all know, don't we, let's face it, we all know a lot of people that went through some very, very difficult times um, during COVID. I, despite having uh, got COVID three times um, during the pandemic and my family also, we weren't badly affected, truthfully. 
and it wasn't a particularly a disaster for us as a family but we did unfortunately see um a very bad ramifications including my wife's best friend who's got long covid and really very very a sick lady and she's got a young a young family and it's very very um tough to see so i think it's made as all in having seen the uh, the images on the uh, on the um television at night having sort of clapped our saucepans for the nhs in the uh, in the evenings and seen all of us have got a story about a friend that has been or a relation that suffered or indeed died uh, uh, elderly um, uh, friends of ours have passed away with uh, with covid has and made us all be much more much more empathy much more sympathy so where that translates to me on the zoom meetings or the face-to-face -face meetings is we're now asking questions of each other how are you with with meaning we're asking what what are you what are you where are you going to on holiday we're asking how are you feeling and then it goes on to you know how are you mentally the questions that you would never if, if someone asked me how are you feeling mentally uh, as a client a few months ago a few years ago i'd have said well, but why are you being so impertinent? That's really rude. I'm a, my personal life, my personal life. But now we feel very sort of um, able to uh, to undress mentally in front of each other and be uh, very open about our feelings and what's uh, what's going on. So I think that's definitely helped business and I help, and the construction industry has been been very good about that. I think we have, um, and of course, as we will come on to know that later, is the the landlord and tenant community have been forced to collaborate, have forced to to come together because uh, of the uh, the pandemic and the problems that um, that caused with um, government enforced lockdowns, etc. So um, yes, I think it's um, I think it's definitely a, a much more open and uh, and friendly place to uh, to work in our industry than it was. How do you, I mean, uh, just, just touching on uh, what you said about the landlord and tenant relationship as well, because that was tested big time, wasn't it, during COVID? And then coming out on the other side, what changes do you see in the real estate industry, especially related to retail? I mean, during COVID, I heard people, I'm, I'm diehard retail and construction and so on. And when someone says, oh, you know, there's no not going to be a high street anymore. No one is going to go to high street. And now we have uh, players like Amazon wanting to open stores. So it's it's I guess what um, I heard somewhere and I can't um, I remember it correctly, but is the polarity is never good, is it? You don't want to be extremely online and you you want to have an online presence. You don't want to be extremely high street either. Is that what you're noticing or how how has it changed the landscape of uh, real estate, as it were, and the use of what you're seeing as the end user? Well, the change galleries are absolutely profound. I mean, I've been doing retail property for um, 35 years and I've never seen uh, change um, so uh, so rapidly as we have because of the pandemic. Um, mainly positive, I would say, bizarrely, uh, for the industry. It accelerated all our, our problems. The, the issues and the dying brands, in truth, have died and they've died quicker because uh, of, of COVID has accelerated that. So you've now got a bizarrely and ironically uh, a playing field of tenants that are in the retail market that are quite robust. The, I don't think you'll see many receiverships um, for some years to come in you uh, know high profile in retail because uh, all of the, um, the wheat from the chaff has been uh, sort of resolved. The weak retailers um, have restructured, have uh, got into administration, have CVA'd. So who remains in your in this uh, in the pool that you're fishing in is actually a very strong sort of um, a strong bunch. Where it's also um, where it's led the landlord and tenant relationship to 
I would say half of my business, Gary, is acting for representing landlords and in uh, shopping centers and high streets and regenerations and, and city centers and half of them as for the brands. I think um, the, the tenants, for the most part, were extremely courteous and polite and and uh, very helpful through the uh, for, for most for the most part there obviously were exceptions during the uh, the process and all they were asking for is during the government enforced lockdown period we want to share our rent 50 50 with you mr landlord we couldn't open our stores for trade it's unfair that we don't pay any rent but i, I don't want to pay the full rent because that's not uh, not fair sadly i have to say if the landlords had immediately taken that stance then we would we would have had this amazing three years of bringing landlords and tenants together for the first time in my really in my professional lifetime. I would say, disappointingly, the majority of landlords either didn't do that at all, didn't find a way of finding a um, a balance of resolving it on an equal 50-50 uh, sharing the pain of COVID basis, or some of them that did were ultimately too late in committing to that process. So they caused pain for two years by being in denial, trying to get full rent, litigating, trying to until the government intervened with the moratorium. So I think the landlord community, unfortunately, didn't come out of it particularly strongly. There obviously were uh, a number of the larger landlords that were excellent and exemplary, the Crown Estate being uh, being one that springs to mind. Um, but I, I, th I think so there was definitely a collaboration required. I'm just hoping now that we've come out of it. I'm very much hoping the landlord and tenant community, a bit like we had that discussion a minute ago about mental health, I'm hoping that they will, they'll both remember, uh, I love the expression, we'll all be remembered by our, um, our actions at this time. And I'm just hoping that uh, they will all sort of uh, realize that we've got through this together as, as a team. We need each other to survive. Let's hope we can have a sort of very uh, collaborative uh, um, approach going forward. A more symbiotic relationship rather than a parasitic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's quite an interesting. I mean, uh, the other word that sprung to my mind was a sustainable relationship, which which would help both the parties going forward as well, isn't it? It, 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 really, it really would, because they they both um, uh, they both need each other so so badly, and they and they probably now the uh, tenant um, uh, demand is uh, a little bit less because of people going by the wayside So landlords need occupiers more than ever, whether it be offices, industrial or uh, or retail, you need it or residential, you need to have your tenants. So uh, what's the point in being a very aggressive landlord and falling out with your uh, your occupiers? You've got to work together in a symbiotic way. And then the final point, sorry, I forgot to mention, Gary, because you touched on it earlier, is what I'm seeing as a trend, um, which I think is that original question you asked, is a move back to brick and mortar retail in a major way more than i think it shocked the government i think it shocked uh, the industry uh, we're now up to um, a level of uh, 2019 sales plus so we're now actually doing better than we were pre-covid in most retail locations and that's actually with footfall still especially in london still down on uh, 2019 but the average transaction value the atvs as we call it uh, are up and that's because people are fed up buying product from their bedrooms. You see today, unfortunately, and yesterday, the disastrous share price uh, uh, collapse of ASOS, Boohoo, fortunately, and the Hut Group, et cetera, to name but, uh, but a few. And that's because people are, um, the returns policy is one of the reasons for that. But one of the main reasons is people are, um, you know, if you've been, in inverted commas, as my son would say, a saddo, buying stuff in your bedroom for three years and you're now got you're now been allowed out into the fresh air why wouldn't you try and sort of enjoy 
brick and mortar retail shopping and shopping centers and entertainment and competitive socializing. Why wouldn't you enjoy that more now than ever? Uh, yeah, it's the social it, element as well, isn't it? It goes exactly. all it's all social. It's all about um, to make you feel happier. And uh, so people, I think, are really um, wanting to drive themselves into rather than seeing shopping as an experience that they had to do to, to go and buy a frock or a, a jacket or a pair of underwear. Now they're going in there to really sort of enjoy themselves and interact with their friends. And they're they're seeing it as a lot more of an enjoyable experience than it perhaps was pre-pandemic. So um as you say, the future has got to be an omnichannel world of um, online wholesale distribution metaverse. And I think um, that will be a big, big piece in, of retail going forward. Um, but also um, the brick and mortar is definitely, definitely here to stay. And arguably is even more important now than it was before the pandemic. I guess one question that comes to my mind, Scott, is uh, did you always want to build your own business? Yes, I, I, um, I, I thought that I was um, slightly unemployable. Um, having qualified and done the, uh, the estate management degree I mentioned earlier at South Bank, I then went to join quite a large lot of what, two or three large firms. So I was at Richard Ellis, uh, which is the precursor to uh, where I am now, rather ironically. Uh, I was at Conrad Riplett. Uh, I worked as a, a developer with Gerald Ronson at the Heron Corporation. So I tried lots of larger firms and I spotted pretty early on that I was a little bit of a... Um, a maverick or an entrepreneur. I, I, was, uh, I, I, I was actually pulling back from saying maverick for that Top Gun reason that I'm having watched the movie uh, uh, just the other day. Um, but I, um, I definitely recognised that I was an entrepreneur. I don't, I don't think that I belonged in a, um, at that time in a corporate environment. I wanted to invent. I wanted to try and find new ways of, uh, uh, of, of learning, new ways of teaching and to try new skill sets. So um, I found that more difficult in a, in a claustrophobic a corporate environment i wanted to to run my own business uh, one day is what i was thinking at that uh, at that early uh, stage and what what uh, make you because there are a lot of people who ask me having made the jump from corporate to MA and then to uh, business ownership so what made you take that leap of faith everything in life for gary comes down for me to a uh, um, a movie um, sliding doors and it was a sliding doors uh, moment for uh, for everything. You know, I, the bit I didn't uh, dwell on a second ago was that when I went to that university in South Bank Poly, I then I failed. Uh, and I want any anyone to sort of that's watching this podcast to think that uh, you have to be a straight A student. Uh, you don't. I got 34% in my first year. I reset the uh, the degree, and it's bear in mind it is the easiest degree supposedly in on the planet. I reset the second year and got 32%. It was a well no, never been done before. Nobody's ever actually done worse in a reset year. So I therefore had to do night classes um, and uh, continue that those uh, those studies. The university wouldn't have me anymore. It's now a university. South Bank have turned into from a college to a university. So uh, I um, I got a job through um, a leg up from my father. He made a recommendation to or a, uh, he knew through in the engineering world he knew a developer with Gerald Ronson and Erwin Seller. So they took me on as a, an office boy, as a tea boy, uh, to go and do delivery, not to do any property work, but just to do um, deliveries and, and um, make the tea and get um, his Benson Hedges cigarettes at lunchtime. And uh, so I did that uh, for a little while, but that gave me a chance to, uh, they, they gave me a chance to sort of do in between my duties as a uh, delivery boy. Uh, I was allowed to do development appraisals and discounted cash flows and learnt um, uh, the sort of the, the world of real estate really in my spare time to be honest I didn't have a desk or a, or a chair I had to work in the boardroom when it wasn't being used in their offices so that's how it all really sort of started you did hot desking 
35 years ago. I did. Well, it wasn't so much hot desking. There was just there was no prospect of giving me a desk. I wasn't um, I wasn't being treated seriously as a, as a permanent employee. It was a very I'd like to think it was an early form of hot desking, but it was just the fact that they had a pretty uh, disparaging view of a young man that was just on the uh, on the way up the ladder. But I think the sliding doors uh, moment came when I uh, I went to a firm just after Richard Ellis, Conrad Ripblatt, Richard Ellis, and then I was made redundant to Gary in a in a business um, because of when the recession hit in the uh, you remember the late 80s, 88, 89, 1990, uh, they cut out and retail was pretty badly affected. So they uh, they cut me out. And in truth, that was the sliding doors moment, because would I have had the, um, the chutzpah to go and set my own, the, that sort of Yiddish word for uh, the talent or the drive to my own business? Uh, if I'm being very honest, Gary, I'm not sure to this day whether I would have set my own firm up had I not been given that kick through redundancy. I felt that I had been in different companies. I tried medium, small and large firms. I tried different, I'd learned my um, my way. I was then laid off. And do I try and find a way back in when the market was going to improve into the corporate world? Or do I think that let's be an entrepreneur, let's go and set one's own firm up. And I did in 90, uh, 1992. And that uh, February the 2nd, with one other guy, we couldn't afford a, a full-time secretary. So we had a, a lady that worked with us one day a week and then two days a week. Uh, we were based in Albemarle Street. And it was, um, it was a, a leap of faith that I really didn't have, if I'm being truthful, a lot of options. So the reason we're telling this uh, the story is anyone watching that has any interest in this, uh, please don't think out of adversity. When I was at my lowest ebb um, comes opportunity and you can, uh, you can survive. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Because sometimes you're in the deepest dungeons thinking, why me? <laughs> why am I here kind of thing? And the next thing you know, that you have an opportunity which probably was not given to anyone else and you just have to work hard and stick through it, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Did you have a plan that you're going to sell the business? or uh, No, not at all. The, the, the plan was my, my father, again, gave me some wonderful advice at the time. Um, he said that uh, really, and it's so true, really, um, what we do as an industry isn't technically rocket science. So you just have to work harder than your boss. This is a this is something that I sort of have felt my mantra all my life. I'm sadly, I failed to uh, pass this on to uh, most of my staff over the years. We employed 50 people at CWM in the end, and we employ thousands uh, here at CBRE, and 2,200, in fact, are in the London office. Um, and uh, I, I think that those days have gone, but really the industry we're in, the more work you put in, the, the longer hours, the, 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 the more um, financial benefits there are. Now, that doesn't apply to every industry. I'm not saying this is something in our podcast that applies to every single area, because that's simply not true. But certainly in real estate, if you are prepared to work all hours God sends, then uh, you will eventually get um, spotted as being a hardworking, uh, committed young woman and young man, and you'll get the rewards and the promotions accordingly. And that's what I did from an early stage. I thought I'm going to, be work, I'm going to work harder than anybody else. And um, I'm going to put more hours in. And uh, I was a single man and uh, it allowed me to, I didn't have family to, to worry about at that time. So I worked very, very hard. And um, because it's not rocket science, I, I got some traction and a bit of luck a lot of luck along the way. But as Gary Player always says, the famous golfer, the more practice you put in, the luckier you get. And uh, that's what definitely what happened to me. If I worked hard, I got luckier somehow. Yeah, there is a, there is a coincidence there. <laughs> there definitely is a correlation. 
I mean, one of the other things, Scott, which comes to my mind is um, with regards to building a business and specifically in the real estate world, relationships play a big part. I mean, that kind of links back to the team element, uh, but also what you have learned from your career and way back when, when you were in school as well. I mean, uh, and one of the things I remember always about working with you is how great you are with maintaining relationships, even, even with the most difficult people we both know, and <laughs> how you manage the temperament of being, uh, of, you know, difficult clients, uh, meeting the expectations, managing teams. How, how have you developed that? And what, what's the secret sauce here? Well, I, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, I, um, I think for, for me, it is um, not what you think, Gary. My, um, I wouldn't say I'm particularly talented at that in every, every single area. This brings me back again to Shirin. So I felt early on, I was good at business winning and uh, I was good at networking into the right connections to win those uh, mandates. And I suddenly realized pretty short soon thereafter, I, I'm the one responsible for keeping those uh, relationships going. Now, even though there might be difficult, uh, I, I like to see the good in everybody. And even the most tricky clients um, have got some wonderful size to them. But I, I, I sense commercially, and perhaps this is my uh, Glasgow Scottish background, I sense that I, if the most important thing was for me to win that piece of business, win that, win that mandate, and then to keep that client happy for as long as I possibly could. Now, for me, it wasn't possible, I didn't think, to then keep my own staff equally as happy as I was my clients, uh, if that makes sense. I, I just felt that my priority was always going to be the clients to keep those men and women happy and to constantly give them the service. Uh, and therefore, there was going to be a weak spot with me being unable to, uh, to bring to the fore young women and young men in my office. I wasn't going to give them the time, the enough EQ. So that's when I sort of made the, the best career decision of my life in bringing in Shirin to um, compensate. So she, not to say that she wasn't great at winning business too, but her core skill was very much keeping everybody happy. So um, it was a great uh, duo. So I was basically sort of winning the business and allowed and freed me up to, uh, to go and network as much as possible while she was sorting out uh, all of the people and making sure everyone was happy and, uh, and bringing them around. So that, so that, that was the, that combined skills was, uh, was definitely um, my sort of uh, success story from that early stage which is quite a beautiful way of putting it was more like inward outward looking isn't it it doesn't make you less caring about the team but the business needed that so you had to focus on the outward part of it and Shreen's core ability as you said was more inward looking and providing the team with the support which which is needed as well to give that level of delivery to the clients so you only have so many hours in the day Gary and I, I actually sort of if I'm being honest and I would and I, I would be if, if anything slightly um upsets me to to this day after all these years and you can see from my gray hair how many years i've been uh, in this industry people will say a lot of people that have worked for me over the years will say well scott didn't really um get involved in that much not that he's a bad man manager we, he just isn't a man manager we never really had him now i think that's a little bit unfair on on me personally because i recognize that my skill set for the for the benefit of that member of staff and for the whole company was client facing and winning business and implementing uh, client advice rather than just winning it. I was obviously doing the, the transactions too. And therefore there's only enough hours in the day. I couldn't find 40% or, or thereabout of my, my working week to keep everybody uh, 
warm and cuddly and happy and having coffees with them all. And I can now, as chairman, I can now do this. And I'm making up for it with gusto. I'm having coffees and, and cuddles with everybody all the time and giving them as much of a, as I can of my uh, uh, support and, uh, and, and mentoring. But I just didn't have the, um, on the way up uh, that ladder, I didn't have the time to uh, provide that. Um, but I found someone that could. <laughs> which is which is what that matches really isn't it because then they are focused on it as well rather than doing a half half-hearted not half-hearted job but if you are if you are strapped for time and then if you then don't focus on the outward looking part and the business falls apart you might be giving hugs but that doesn't still work does it it's one of those things how, how is a sustainability seen in the industry right now uh, from the landlord tenant perspective even even for building the business and how important has it been absolutely vital um gary we we um we want to probably the biggest um uh, mandate of my professional career about uh, three or four weeks ago and um from land securities to uh, handle all of their uh, retail real estate portfolio um it's now public knowledge so i'm not betraying any confidences and um very very critically as part of that presentation and on the front page not the back page of the um what they call the RFP, the um, the brief that you get to uh, to, to pitch on the front page uh, was all about sustainability. Now, the benefit at, of CBRE, as opposed to CWM, my, my company that we um, we sold and merged with um, CBRE uh, four months ago, I didn't have any sustainability credentials whatsoever. Clearly, I was very cognizant of the uh, the issues, but I didn't have a team, uh, and therefore, if there became an instruction which I think will be the case of every instruction right now that we try to win, you need to employ sustainability experts. Now, as it happens, we have a team here of 48 people on sustainability. It is one of our biggest divisions and led by a lovely lady who actually, funny enough, was ex-Land Securities, Kayla Fenn-Smith, who uh, came with me to the, um, the presentation. Now, um, sustainability wasn't um, a little bit of an add-on to that presentation. It was the most important thing we dealt with in that uh, in that pitch and uh, I, I think that um, we, there was lots of other companies that pitched too we obviously won it so we did something right and I think it's a lot to do with the fact that it is uh, it is so front of mind and it has to be if you don't um, deal with sustainability above all all other subjects right now um, in construction then there is something fundamentally wrong with your business policy and you won't win uh, as an advisor you won't win much uh, work if you don't have that at the forefront of everyone's mind some someone who has been uh, banging the drum for about a decade it's it's quite nice to see that it's on the forefront of everyone's mind right now because i guess i was banging that drum 10 years ago too too soon and then uh, you come out looking like what is she talking about sometimes but um one of the things which it just shouts out to me also is um the part which you mentioned with regards to sustainability was that it's it's the forefront is this important in every part of the was it important for um did, did cbre ask you when you were going through the merger for the sale because i'm just trying to link if someone is looking for building a business and selling the business are you saying going forward that should be a core part of what they should deliver to make it more sellable as it were yeah, I, th I think not so much sellable, because um, clearly we managed to successfully um, sell our business, sell our business without any expertise in that area at all. But I think what we were good at, we were aware of the um, 
the missing sort of piece that almost made us in some ways attractive to um, to CBRE because we were better than CBRE at um, travel retail uh, outlets at London Village's um, regeneration consultancy advice on um, on road mapping retail brands throughout Europe. We had even though we were a smaller business in comparison, we had lots of uh, greater skill set, but we didn't have any sustainability talent whatsoever amongst a few other pieces, but particularly sustainability. So they recognized that it was almost attractive to think, you know what, there's two and two could make five here. We can sort of, uh, we can put the two businesses together and we can give Scott Woody and his team what, he, what they need. We've got that skill set. And of course, um, very fortunately, within a month, uh, it worked with the biggest mandate we've ever won in, uh, in my career. So it, um, so I wouldn't say that um, businesses that are thinking about selling have to provide sustainable uh, or sustainability um, expertise. However, if I was to start CWM again, I would definitely recruit women and men who have an understanding of that um, part of the industry. You know, it's clearly you, you don't, there is definitely an issue amongst the middle age, uh, uh, if I may say men, who have not got a sustainability sort of front of mind uh, mindset. And uh, I think what's going to happen now, if I was to do the whole business again, I would be employing people that would have, would all have that sort of talent or that skill set as part of their um, armory. Which is, yeah, it's, it's also one of the most interesting parts uh, is I see is small businesses. It is challenging to kind of, if you look at ESG, you, you do a lot of environmental stuff in small businesses normally because people, people know how to recycle because every penny counts in a way. And uh, so I feel like environmental part of it is there. Social part is most of the times there because you're small. Uh, when you're small, you do a lot with the community and you're closer to your client and stuff is the governance part, which I feel like it kind of can be challenging where you have, you need, as you mentioned, that uh, you didn't have anyone in the team to help you. So that becomes a pretty much like a challenge, isn't it, for the SME in the, in the, in the sense of ESG and following a strategy there. It does, Gary. I think, I think where, I, where I'm, I'm sensing though, which is uh, maybe I'm being a little bit controversial here, but I, I, I don't think um, that you, um, that businesses should just um, employ uh, ESG and sustainability expertise within their organization. We all have to have that skill set in ourselves. So it can't be just, I'm going to bring in Jeff or Angela, who are, who are very good at that sort of uh, thing. Um, we all now need to um, take responsibility. We're all in this together. We all need to save the planet. We've got to sort of uh, work collaboratively and anyone that uh, is unable to have a sort of sensible conversation about the subject or to be able to put it in their reports or in their advice to clients, uh, it will no longer be acceptable. Ah, I've got a man for that. I'll bring him into the, you can't do that anymore. What, what about you, Scott? What about you, uh, Gary? You've got, you've got to have that sort of expertise. Um, so I think this is this part of our, um, you know, the new world is that we have to learn these new skills, whether we like it or not. It's, and, and we should like it because it is bloody important to our children and our children's children. It's um... yeah, uh, Scott. I mean, on this this very note, uh, I feel like we are coming to the end of the discussion we are having. But I have one last question, if I may. Uh, if you were asked what was the biggest risk you have taken and what did you learn from it, what would that be? Never, ever, ever be um, scared of uh, of failure. 
that is the key thing as i described earlier with my university to, uh, career and the setting my own business up but even since then gary i've taken risks not massively um huge financial risk but taken significant uh, career risks and business risks all my life and never ever be scared of failure if you don't take risks in life in business life then you will never ever be uh, a huge um, success and you'll never learn most of the risks that i took most of them were a disaster but i learned from them all and therefore i became um, a much much better businessman later on in my career than I would otherwise have been if I hadn't taken those uh, mistaken uh, risks. I would say that's my, my one biggest takeaway in, in uh, entrepreneurial life is take those risks and don't be scared if it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, then you've learned from it. It's been a, uh, a risk worth taking. One of the things which I have to constantly remind myself before I feel like I'm out of depth and then I'm like, should I be doing this? Because I don't have enough experience or, you know, this monster comes in your head sometimes. And uh, then I have to remind myself is uh, this is where the growth happens, doesn't it? It does, but sh shooting for the stars. Um, but even if it doesn't result in growth, though, Gary, that's my, my main point is that it doesn't matter. The fact that you've taken that risk and it's failed isn't a disaster. You uh, you might think at the time when it failed, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. What, how stupid was I? But it will, uh, in the grand scheme of things, you'll see when the whole jigsaw pieces together in five or 10 years time, you'll realize that that risk that you made the mistake in taking has helped you achieve an enormous goal later on. I'd like to thank Scott on behalf of all our listeners at The Business of Building. Scott, thank you so much for sharing all your insights about the industry your career, your personal aspirations and learnings with us and our listeners. To all our listeners, thank you so much for listening and joining me today and Scott in our discussion at The Business of Building. I'd invite you to rate the episode and review. And also, please could you share this with all your friends and family who would be interested in The Business of Building. Thank you so much and look forward to joining you in our next chat.